Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I mentioned last week, quoting uh, a friend of mine who wrote a book on the Psalms, Tremper Longman, he called the Psalms a, a sanctuary. And I said, I love that imagery, the Psalms as a, as a place where we can come as we are, not as we should be, and bear our souls to God. Be honest with God. Tell God how we're really feeling about things. The Psalms are a place where we can express ourselves honestly without fear of rejection. That we can tell the truth about ourselves to God and not fear that God's going to leave us or forsake us. Psalm after Psalm is a maskless expression to God about the way life really feels. It gives us the permission to feel joy and fear and anger and wonderment and grief and gratitude and desperation and anxiety and love and longing. Psalm after Psalm gives us permission to feel the things that we're feeling without apology. There's nothing about the Psalms that are fake. They're real. It's real life. It's Real people confessing real needs to a real God. It's talking about life the way it actually is, not life the way we imagine it to be or life the way we wish it would be. This is talking about life the way it actually is. Psalm after psalm after psalm gives us permission to feel what we're feeling and to express those emotions toward God, to God. The psalms give us a place to go with everything that goes on inside of us. They give us the okay to to cry and laugh and yell and dance and sing and be still. I've told you before that some of my most honest conversations with God have been when I've been at my lowest and I've expressed frustration, anger with him, unfairness, injustice, God, you're big and you're in control of all things. Why can't you fix this problem? Why can't you fix me? Why can't you show up when I need you to show up? Those kind of honest prayers that express frustration, confusion, those are all here in the Psalms. The Psalms, by virtue of their existence, give us permission to be totally honest with God about the way we feel about things. And I've said that while there are many different types of psalms, there's 150 of them, and there are many different types of psalms, most psalms fit into one of three categories. Either they are a psalm of praise, a psalm of lament, or a psalm of thanksgiving. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that um, one Bible scholar, one biblical scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann wrote a book in the early 2000s where he described these as psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of reorientation. Those are nice, clean categories that we can pretty much put every psalm into. Praise psalms or psalms of orientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things are going well, when life is good. Lament psalms or psalms of disorientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things are not going well, when life is bad. And thanksgiving psalms or psalms of reorientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things get better, when our life begins to move from chaos to peace, 
from noise to stillness and settledness. Well, Psalm 51 is a lament psalm. In this psalm, David is lamenting. This is a psalm that was written by King David. In fact, I mentioned last week that some of the psalms uh, in your Bible, at the top of the psalms, some of the psalms give us uh, the author, and some of the psalms don't. Some of the psalms give us an author and the context in which the author wrote this psalm, and others don't. Well, Psalm 51 is very specific. It not only tells us who wrote the psalm, King David, but it tells us the context in which he wrote the psalm, which is the context of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. You may be familiar with the story. Uh, The people of Israel, the men of Israel are off at war, and uh, David is strolling on his balcony one night in the palace, and he happens to see this beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, and so he sends for her, and she comes over, and um, he sleeps with her, and he finds out a little bit later that she's pregnant. Well, now he's stuck. He's in a pickle. He's in a jam. He's gotten some other, one of his uh, soldiers who's out at war, one of his soldier's wife's pregnant. So uh, he comes up with this plan, this devious, dark plan that he's going to send for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come home uh, in the hope that he will spend the night at his house, sleep with his wife, and when it comes out that she's pregnant, they'll all think that it's Uriah's baby. But Uriah's got way too much character and too much integrity for that, so he does come home. But because his fellow soldiers are out fighting a war, he can't in his own mind or in good conscience go back and sleep in the comfort of his own home and the arms of his wife, and so he sleeps outside. Well, David finds out about this and has to come up with another plan. And so uh, he sends for the general, Joab, and he says, Joab... Actually, he doesn't. He writes a letter. This is even worse. He writes a letter to Joab and seals it and gives it to Uriah and says, bring this to Joab. It's instructions from me on what to do on the front. And little did Uriah know that he was carrying with him his own death sentence because David said, listen, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines of the fiercest battle so that he'll die. And so Joab does it. And word gets back that Uriah is dead. And so David sends for Bathsheba and marries her. Problem solved as far as David knows. A little while later, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, King, I have a problem that I need help solving. The king says, okay, what, what's, what's the problem? And he says, well, there's, there's two men in your kingdom. One's very rich and one's very poor. The rich man has uh, a herd of sheep, and the poor man has one little ewe lamb. And uh, he treats this lamb like a child. This lamb eats from his table, and uh, this lamb is like a member of their family. Uh, he sleeps in the bed with his children. I mean, this is, it, was like their, it was like another child, a pet. More than just property, it was a pet. And one day, the rich man uh, has a friend coming in from out of town, and rather than going into his own flock and taking 
a lamb to kill and serve to his friend for dinner. He sends servants down the street to the poor man's house, grabs his one little lamb, kills it, brings it back and serves it to his friend. Well, David is outraged. He hears about this and he's like, what? Bring this guy to me now. I mean, he's gonna die. And you know the famous words of Nathan. Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. And David just falls apart, falls apart. He realizes now for the first time what he's actually done. The scales have fallen from his eyes and he realizes the gravity of his sin. He realizes the gravity and the seriousness of, of his sin and his guilt and the evil that he's done. He's aware of it. He not only committed adultery and abused his power to summon this woman to him, but then he covered it up by having her husband murdered. This is the king of Israel, God's people. And he not only commits adultery, but has her husband killed because he impregnated her. Um, I have a I have a friend who once said that all of us are three bad days away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. Um, at a time in our culture when our worst private moments and our most shameful secrets and deepest character flaws can be easily found out and publicly exposed for the world to see, I find great comfort in the fact that King David knew what that felt like. David sinned grievously against God and all of God's people. He abused his God-given power for personal gain. He was blinded by his own uh, ego, his own pride, his own sense of entitlement. He took advantage of a woman under his care and then had her husband killed to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. In the Jerusalem tabloids, David's sordid story would have been plastered all over the front page. All over the front page. His well-known affair with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah was played out in the public square and it was a scandal for the ages. For the ages. And to make it worse, it was permanently recorded in the Bible so that every generation from then until now would know about it. There are times when I find myself grieving over the fact that thanks to the internet, my worst season in life is forever preserved. That from now until the day I die, if somebody Googles my name, which I don't recommend you do, but if someone Googles my name, they're going to read stuff about me, much of which is not true. Nevertheless, people don't know that, but they're going to read stuff about me and come to conclusions about me um, that are just uh, debilitating at times if I think about it too much. Well, Google searches are nothing compared to the fact that the Bible has been preserved for thousands and thousands of years, and David's story is going nowhere. 
for 2,500 years or so, David's dirty laundry has been hanging in the public square. Um, I mean, apart from his defeat of Goliath, David's sexual affair and murderous cover-up are what he is remembered for the most. Can you imagine if social media existed during his time? If Twitter existed? If the internet existed during his time? I mean, David would have definitely been public enemy number one of the Me Too movement. Public enemy number one. This man in power abuses his power for personal gain, brings a woman who is not his wife into his chamber, gets her pregnant, has her husband killed. I mean, this guy would have been crucified on social media, canceled forever. And yet, for some reason, God chose to preserve that part of David's story, in large part to give us Psalm 51. I'm sure David was tempted to go into seclusion and never come out so that he could avoid the angry stares and wagging fingers of people. It's a lot easier and a lot less painful to run away when something terrible about you has been exposed. It's a lot easier and a lot less painful to hide. And yet this notorious adulterer and murderer and abuser, this man who is described by God as a man after God's own heart. This notorious adulterer and murderer and abuser was lifted up by God to write his most famous psalm in the aftermath of his most infamous fall. And we can all be glad that he did because this psalm gives all of us words. All of us. In fact, if David had not suffered through this dark night of the soul, we wouldn't have his raw prayer for mercy. We wouldn't have his confession. We wouldn't have before us an idea of what confession and honesty before God even looks like. In this psalm, David breaks down, breaks down. In the aftermath of the prophet Nathan saying, thou art the man, you're the guy. You were given everything. God gave you everything. You had more than you could handle. You had more of everything. You were the most powerful man in the world. God gave you that. And you went after one thing God didn't give you. How arrogant, how egotistical, how deep is your sense of entitlement? Who do you think you are? And David realizes what he's done. And he's overcome with guilt and fear. He breaks down. He, he loses his composure as he composes his song of, conf of confession. Loses it. He comes clean. He, he admits his sin and his need for forgiveness, and he appeals to God's mercy. He begs for God's unfailing love and compassionate cleansing in the wake of his greatest failure. I mean, look at verses one to three. How honest is this? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. I'm aware of my sin. I'm, I know what I've done now. I see it. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That verse used to confuse me because I'm like, he didn't just sin against God. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against all of God's people that he was really commissioned to protect, and watch over and lead. But what he's saying there is, um, my sin against other people is a, because I'm finite and you're finite, my sin against you is finite. My sin against God is infinite. What R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. So he's not saying that the consequences of my sin don't affect other people. He's saying, I have broken your law. I have sinned against you first and foremost. I have, in, in, in caring less about other people, and more about myself, I've demonstrated that I care more about myself than I care about you. That's what he's saying there. Against you, you only have I sinned. And then he says in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he means by that is I, am, I was born a sinner. My father was a sinner. My mother was a sinner. I was born a sinner. There has never been a moment since conception that I have not been tainted by sin. I know, he, what he's confessing before God is, I'm a sinner. That's not popular in our culture today. It's not. We can use a lot of different words, but to just go, I'm a sinner. You're not just, I'm, I'm weak. I screw up sometimes. I'm imperfect. I'm, 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 I'm broken and not whole. All of those are okay, and they're accurate descriptions of us. But so often I feel like we shy away from just saying the truth. We're sinners, and sin is a serious thing. Sin destroys things. It destroys us. It's what separates us from God. And so David here is just coming clean. He's owning it. He's owning it and saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I have broken your law. I am unholy. I am unrighteous. I'm a sinner against you. And you only have I sinned. He's begging God for mercy. He's begging God for cleansing. I mean, have you ever felt like that? Desperate for forgiveness? I've told you the story about uh, I forget who it was. I, my mind always draws a blank when I think about, when I try to remember who it was, but it was a secular psychologist back in the 1940s who said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if I could just convince them that they're forgiven. I mean, have you, have you ever felt desperate for forgiveness? Have you ever felt desperate for mercy? Desperate to feel clean? I have. I have felt at times paralyzed by guilt. I have felt crippled, crippled by regret. I have felt hopeless in the wake of personal collapse and failure. I have lived with the incapacitating fear that I have ruined my life and the lives of those that I love. 
I have felt the dirt of my sin stick to me in ways that made me despair of ever feeling clean again. I have felt that. It's why I love this psalm. As evil, treacherous, and deceptive, selfish as David was, I am him. It may look different than David's sin and his, but I'm this guy. I'm him. I feel this. Every word of this, I feel it. I mean, who likes feeling dirty? Who likes dealing with an unclean conscience? Who, Who likes to deal with rumbling regrets and monstrous memories? Who likes that stuff? I mean, who likes to remember the cruel things we've said to our spouse or our kids when we're angry or, or the things we've done and thought in secret, things that nobody knows? Struggles we have that we're afraid to give voice to because people might walk away from us. I mean, David's lament gives us the words we need when we feel haunted by guilt and shame. I mean, this is for us. It's a gift from God to us. Gives us the words, when I don't know what to say, when I have no clue what to say, I'm just overcome by guilt and shame and regret and loss and I feel paralyzed and I can't really share it with anybody because I don't know, I don't wanna burden anybody and quite honestly, if you knew some of that stuff, you might walk away from me. So where do I go with it? Well, God gives us a place to go. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Confession is good for the soul. It's an unburdening of our burdens before the only one who can carry our burdens fully. It's been said that verse 10 is the epicenter of Psalm 51. That it's the summary of David's true need. It demonstrates that David understands how he's gotten himself into such a mess. Look at what he says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, why is that so significant? Because when he says, created me a clean heart, O God, he's admitting that his greatest problem is not outside of him. It's inside of him. You see, our our world would have you to believe that our greatest problems are outside of us, Other people, him, her, my job, my boss, this world, the people in this world, my geographical location, that our greatest problem is outside of our greatest problems are outside of us, and the only solution is inside of us. You've got what it takes to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, take control of your life, um, defeat all of the giants in your life, blah, blah, blah. But this is very different. What David's saying here is, no, my greatest problem is inside of me and the only solution to that problem is outside of me. I am not the solution to the problem. I am the problem. When he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's admitting that his greatest problem is not him or her or them. It's inside of him. He knows that he cannot blame anybody for the choices he's made. You know, this is as old as the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam, Eve, the serpent. You know, they all, they all blow it. 
okay? And God shows up, and uh, they all try to blame each other. Adam's like, <laughs> it's this woman you gave me. And that, that's what, that's what happened. It's this woman, it's her fault. She offered it to me. What was I supposed to do? And the woman's like, don't look at me, God. It's the serpent's fault. He's the one who told me to eat it. And God's like, everybody just settle down. Simmer down. You're all guilty for the choices you made. You can't blame anybody for the choice that you made. Well, the same thing is going on here, and David realizes it. He knows he can't blame anybody for the choices he's made. He's admitting that the heart of his problem is the problem of his heart and that only God can do something about it. God, you gotta do it. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love and mercy. Blot out my sin, blot out my transgression. He knows his deepest problem is inside of him. You know, we carry around with us, wherever we go, an unclean heart. I don't care what the situation is or what we face on a daily basis, we carry with us an unclean heart. We carry inside of us an unclean heart. And that uncleanness uh, sort of affects everything. It affects the way that we think. It affects the way that we feel. It affects the things that we say or don't say. It affects the things that we do or don't do. We bring uncleanness to every equation, to every situation, to every relationship. It's like Pogo said, we have met the enemy and he is us. Well, David knows that God alone can remove his guilt, that God alone can set him straight that God alone can renew him and restore him. He knows that while others may never forgive him, he'll be okay if God forgives him. He knows that. That's why he's making his appeal to God. He knows that if other people look at me badly for the rest of my life and on for the rest of history, I'll be okay if I know that God forgives me, if I know that God loves me. When we know, and you've heard me say this before, when we know that God loves us unconditionally, we don't need everybody else to like us. David knows that. He knows that's true. I am uh, so grateful that David's confession here is so raw, that it's so real, that it's so unedited, so maskless, I love it. It gives me words to say. It gives me feelings to feel. Uh, I said this a couple weeks ago, but you know, when someone shares their successes with me, it can be inspiring. It can be. But when someone shares their failures with me, it reminds me that I'm not alone. And it always gives me hope. Well, Psalm 51 reminds me that we screw up. And whether we ever act out in any kind of big way like this or it just stays inside, we're no different. David had an unclean heart. 
We have an unclean heart. And though our uncleanness may express itself in different ways, and we have our own sophisticated ways of categorizing sins, this is worse than that, and that is worse than this, and so on and so forth. But before God, all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. All, Paul says in Romans 3. That there is no one righteous. No, not one that our hearts are sick and they deceive us rather than going, well, just follow your heart. That's the worst thing you can do, okay? You can follow your heart right off the cliff is what'll end up happening. Um, I mean, our hearts in and of themselves are not trustworthy. The Bible says that. You may not like it. That may go against what some of your favorite people on TV might say. Nevertheless, that's what God says. It's God's diagnosis of us. And Psalm 51 reminds us that, that, we, that we screw up, that guilt and shame and regret are real. They're real. And that we're not alone. We're not alone. That's one of the most painful things about consequences. You screw up and you feel like you're all by yourself. It's hard for you to, it's hard for me to uh, believe that there are other people out there who can really understand my pain, my loss, my guilt, my shame. You feel alone. Well, Psalm 51 is a reminder, we're not alone. We're not. We screw up, we blow it. We do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We fail to do the things that we should do. We screw up. It's part of being a broken person, living in a broken world with other broken people. Consequences are real. Pain is real. Guilt, shame, and regret are real. Loss is real. But grace abounds and we're not alone. Well, having pleaded to God for these things, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, your abundant mercy, cleanse me. After pleading to God for these things, David makes a promise, and this is my favorite part. Verses 13 through 15, look at what he says. He says, do all this stuff for me, God. I mean, cleanse me, forgive me, according to your mercy and your love, blot out my transgressions, wipe my slate clean, Remove my guilt. And then he says in verse 13, and this is what I'll do. Then, once you do that, God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Well, what's going on there. He promises God that he will steward his failures in service to God and in service to others. We don't typically think of our failures as something to steward. We think of them as things to move past and things to cover up. But we don't think of them in terms of failure when we realize it is a gift that we can give to other people. 
What we learn from it is a gift that we can give to other people. He promises God that he will steward his failures in service to God and others. He promises God that he will tell the world, anybody who will listen, about the seriousness of sin and the, the greatness of grace. He promises God that he will spend the rest of his life telling everyone of God's love and God's mercy and God's righteousness. Do all the work that only you can do inside me, God, and then set me up and let me loose. I will tell my story. I, will, I remember where I was sitting and what time of day it was. Stacy and I were newly married. We were living in Texas. I didn't have anything to do all day long. She would get up and go to work. It was my year of just recovery, really. It was God taking me to the wilderness and deconstructing me. And I remember being a 43-year-old man and thinking to myself, what, I'm in a far-off land, away from everything and everyone familiar. I have more time alone now than I've ever had in my entire life. God, what are you doing with me? What do you want to do with me? I was scared. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was sad. I was all of that stuff. And I remember just begging God to show me something. What, what am I going to do? What's the rest of my life going to look like? I was thinking a year ago, I knew exactly which trajectory I was on and where my life was headed. And now I don't. I'm sinking. I'm drowning. And I don't hear God speak audibly. If I did, it would probably scare me to death, okay? It's, it's, I'm assuming that God's voice sounds very much like Stacy's. However, <laughs> I don't actually hear him talk, okay? But I had this impression that was so real and so tangible that I knew I could bank on it, that it was from God. And it was basically God saying, you tell the truth about yourself and let me do the rest. Well, what does that look like, God? Don't worry about it. I'll show you what that looks like when the time is right. But if you want some glimpse into what I'm calling you to do, summoning you to do, here it is. You tell the truth about yourself and you don't worry about what other people think. You take whatever remnants of a mask you have left on your face, you take it off, you burn it up. You tell the truth. Just tell the truth because my grace shines brightest in the darkness. So it's okay. Tell your story. Don't be edited. Don't Photoshop your narrative. Just tell the truth. Well, this is what David has promised to do. I am going to steward my failures. I am going to tell anybody who will listen about the seriousness of sin and the greatness of grace. I am going to spend the rest of my life telling everybody about your love and your mercy, which was proven to me when I was at my worst. This forgiven sinner now becomes the instructor of sin and forgiveness. This absolved, 
adulterer now becomes the premier preacher of our unfaithfulness and God's fidelity, God's faithfulness. This pardoned life taker, this pardoned murderer is now singing about a God who gives new life to those who deserve death. David won't shut up. David can't shut up and God doesn't want him to. God, in fact, broke him for this very reason. He will live, David will spend the rest of his days, he did spend the rest of his days on earth living in the consequences of his sin. His family was dysfunctional from this point forward. There were uprisings within his own children. I mean, his life from this point forward was messy. It was messy. He lived a burdened, heavy life. He stayed as king. God let him stay as king, but his life was a mess. And his family's life was a mess. And every time one of his kids screwed up, I could picture him going, gosh, what have I done? What have I brought into this family? I feel that way. <laughs> I feel that way. Whenever I see my kids struggle, I'm like, what did I do? My oldest son was married for five years, got divorced. He was married for four months. Four months when I screwed up and I think to myself, gosh, I've got these two adorable grandkids. They're going to grow up in a home where their mom and dad aren't married. What did, what did I do? I know I'm not responsible for all everybody else. I know that. I know how David felt. I know how he felt. His life was a mess from this point forward. It wasn't easy. But man, he knew something about God that he didn't know before. He knew something about grace that he didn't know before. He knew where to go in a way that he didn't know before. He knew something about mercy and forgiveness and gratitude for life that he didn't know before. He was humbled. He was broken. God did this. It's in the broken pieces of our lives that God shows us who he is. It's in our weakness that he showcases his strength, Paul says in Corinthians. It's when we are weak that he is strong. It's the reason why when the apostle Paul said, God, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Can you please take it away from me? Nobody knows what it actually was. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't tell us what it was because if the Bible did tell us exactly what it was, we may go, well, that's not my problem, so this doesn't relate to me. But because he keeps it generic on purpose, all of us can relate to it. And God says, I'm not going to take that thing out of your life. Whether it was a person or an internal struggle or an addiction, nobody knows. Some physical ailment and God said, I'm not going to take it because it keeps you dependent on me. And it gives me an opportunity to showcase my strength and my mercy. See, David has learned things about God's love and mercy and forgiveness that he could not have learned apart from failure. Richard Rohr puts it like this in a book that he wrote that I read that was recommended to me by a nun. <laughs> a nun, literally. Recommended to me by a nun uh, at a convent that I went to for three days. A convent. 
Um, and she recommended this book to me called Falling Upward. And he says this, I picked it up again about two weeks ago just to kind of thumb through it and was reading some of the notes in the book that I took during that time. And one of the notes that I had underlined, one of the few of the sentences that I have underlined are these. He says, it's not that failure might happen. No, it will happen. And it will happen to you. Losing, failing, falling, sin, and the suffering that comes from those things is all a necessary and even good part of the human journey. In God's economy of grace, sin and failure become the base metal and raw material for redemption. When I read those sentences in the early summer of 2016, it just glimmer of hope for me. See, David's song and his story are proof that God's intention for those who fail is not for them to stay quiet. He doesn't say, you screwed up, go sit in a corner and shut up. He doesn't say that. Now, there's a time when it's right and appropriate to go sit in a corner and shut up. Let God do his work. Sometimes I see people crash and burn and they try to get back up too quickly. And I'm like, dude, don't. You're still, go over there. Let God do his surgical work. Let him do his deconstructing work. Let him do his, let him do his killing work in your life so that he can bring you to, back to life new. And then you'll know when God wants you to open your mouth. But I can tell you this, that David's song and story are proof that God's intention for those who fail is not for them to stay quiet. Rather, he intends to pick them up, wash them off, and open their mouths wide so that they will speak more loudly than ever of his amazing grace. If anything, Psalm 51 proves that there is no one more qualified to speak of the significance of sin and the gladness of grace like the one who has been there and done that. Recovery places, you've heard me say this before, but recovery places have figured out that the best people to reach those who have bottomed out are those who have bottomed out themselves. You would never, for instance, find a non-alcoholic leading an AA meeting, ever. I think the church could learn, I think the church could learn from that. I do. I really think the church could learn from that. Uh, because the last thing this world needs is another photoshopped church with another photoshopped pastor. That's not what this world needs. And anybody who's, for the most part, 35 and younger, sees right through it when we try. <laughs> when we try to present ourselves as being more put together than we are, more successful than we are, like everything's okay, they see right through that stuff. They're more honest about life, typically, than older generations are. And we can learn something from that. I mean, who better to speak of God's redeeming grace than prodigals who once lived in the pigsty? The more honest you are, I'm telling you, the more honest you are about your failures, the bigger your effect on people will be. That is a fact. Opening up about your struggles helps people so much more than talking about your strengths. 
We want to impress people so bad. And so we spend our time concealing our weaknesses and talking about our strengths. When what really helps people and makes them feel less alone is when we go, me too. I struggle with, I, I'm, 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 I'm struggling too. I'm, I'm discouraged too. I'm sad too. I'm scared too. So if you've blown it like David, if you've blown it like me, then I have good news for you. You're forgiven. You are righteous in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done for you. You are the mouthpiece of God to a broken world. You. You don't have to be seminary trained and be a preacher and stand up on Sunday mornings or whenever in churches and open the Bible and preach in order to be a, a communicator of God's amazing grace. Your weakest parts, your deepest struggles, your, uh, your failures, all of that, that's the good stuff. Rather than doing everything we can to conceal it and put on a happy face, we can be honest. And that helps people. Sets them free. Um, I'll, let me just close with this. I, I could, we got to quit. I could go on and on and on about this psalm. I mean, this, I, the, the amount of personal meaning this psalm has to me uh, is indescribable. Indescribable. I mean, I could literally stand up here for another hour and just walk through verse by verse and tell you story after story. But I can't because I'm getting hungry and I need to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the only reason. It's because I'm getting hungry. Not because you're getting hungry, because I'm getting hungry. That's why I'm stopping. Uh, <laughs> um, so let me, uh, let me just conclude with this. I, uh, and I hope this is a huge encouragement to you. And, and let me just say, I would highly recommend that at least once a week, if not more, just read through Psalm 51. Pray through it. If you don't understand all the words and everything, that's fine. That's okay. It's all right. Just start. Start. Pray through it. I mean, this can serve as such a guide for you to sort of come clean before God and experience the, the cleansing and the refreshed mercy that you long for the newness, the cleanness that you long for. It's such a gift to us, this psalm, such a gift. About four years ago, a friend of mine who has a similar story to mine, although his was not well known, uh, we were noticing that Christian leader after Christian leader after Christian leader, seemingly so in the last five years, has fallen on their face. Scandals. There have been more scandals amongst Christian leaders in the last five to seven years than it seems like there ever was in history. I know that's not true. We just have tools now to expose those things. They were probably always there. But we were growing, this buddy of mine and I were growing in our concern for the way the church typically handles fallen leaders. They discard of them. They put them in a corner and tell them to shut up for life. So given the fact that we were two of those leaders, we decided that we were going to write something about it. 
together. There were some people who said, who in the world do you think you, of course you guys are writing this. This is very self-serving. And I thought, well, you can call it what you want. And maybe it is. It probably is to some degree. I don't know. I just know that um, I have something to say because I've been there. (laughs) We said this. It is anti-Christian to remember people primarily by the scandalous things they've done. We love to whittle an entire life story down to a single season. And then, with the authority invested in us by the state of self-righteousness, we proclaim, this and nothing else is who you are. But the truth is, all of us are more complicated than the singular narrative by which most people identify us. All of us have done very bad things, we've done good things, and we've all done plenty of cocktails of them both. Sadly, most people remember only the bad. Thankfully, we have a God who remembers only the good. And the only good he remembers is the good that Christ has done for us, in us, through us. So if we want to reduce our life story down to one adjective, if we want to whittle our biography down to a single word, then let it be this, beloved. Beloved. We are those who are loved by God. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. None. Our sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. Those words, by the way, are the next tattoo that's going down this arm. I've already gotten a consultation for it, so we'll see. Um, But it is such good news to know that even though we might live in the wake of consequences, And other people that we love may live in the wake of consequences that we did because of something we did. That our standing before God is right. That before God we are clean. At the end of the day, as unclean as we may feel at different times, we know that before God, because of Jesus, we are clean. We are righteous, we are his, we are loved forever, and that there's nothing we can do or fail to do that will ever cause God to leave us or forsake us, ever. And when you know that God loves you unconditionally, it sets you free to tell the truth about yourself because the only person's approval we desperately need is God's, and we already have it. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to The Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider giving to the work God is doing through The Sanctuary. You can give on our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. Thanks for listening to The Sanctuary Podcast.